Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Those of you remaining, please open your Bibles to the book of Amos in the Old Testament, book of Amos. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and you can grab one of those Bibles and open to page 447. We'll be in Amos chapter 3 this morning. If you're interested in getting into um, a lively dialogue or debate with somebody today, you can just say two words, social justice, and you're likely to embark on a very interesting discussion. Social justice, something that um, is talked about a lot in our culture, raising questions about how in particular we are to respond to issues such as defending the oppressed and caring for the poor and racial inequality, immigration policy, police brutality, sexual assault, a number of social ills that we see happening in our nation and in our culture. And we see these things being discussed frequently uh, among our politicians and in our culture. And they're actually discussed quite a bit in the church as well. These things have become frequently addressed as we can see over some events that have happened here recently. The Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, just a couple of months ago, released a statement on social justice. They felt the need to address that. Our denomination, PCA, has not done that yet, but part of this is in response to another statement that came out a little while ago called the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. A few evangelical leaders, John MacArthur, one of those people, um, prepared this statement. It was, a, it was signed by 11,000 evangelicals, so a lot of support for that statement, but many people in the church think it was a bad statement and uh, refused to sign on, and so this kind of issue has been very controversial. And this is a good Sunday to address it because as we get to the prophet Amos, what we're going to find is that Amos is one of the prophets who addresses issues of social justice. And so that's why I'm taking this up Today, Amos, a minor prophet, we are, as you know, going through the Bible, uh, one sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis, moving forward to Revelation, and now we're in this uh, kind of long period called the Minor Prophets. There's 12 Minor Prophets at the end of the Old Testament, and uh, if, you're, if you're just starting to come to new life, you might find some of this a little confusing. The, the Minor Prophets can be a little difficult to understand, and there are a lot of them. But uh, I'm going to remain faithful to the commitment here and continue through each book. And so we'll continue through the Minor Prophets. And here we are in this book called Amos. So background information on uh, Amos. He wrote uh, fairly early, so before the exile. So this is kind of review. I've told you about this before. The prophets are generally divided up depending on when they wrote compared to the time of the exile when Israel and Judah were exiled to Babylon and Assyria. Uh, that was a fulfillment of God's threat of judgment upon these nations. And so you see on the left there, those are the prophets that prophesied before the exile. 
uh, during the exile there in the middle, Daniel, Ezekiel. And then we have post-exilic prophets, they're called, those who prophesied after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We'll get to them eventually, but you see Amos, fourth on the list there before the exile. Amos um, is kind of unusual in that he was a shepherd, so he wasn't a scribe or a Levite or a priest or a, a teacher. He was just a simple shepherd, and yet God chose to use him as a prophet. And so we see there the great diversity of people that God has used to write down his word for us. Very fascinating that in this case, he uses a shepherd. Amos wrote between 793, 739 B.C., about eight centuries before the coming of Christ. Significant events, not really a lot of historical events in Amos. There is some mention of locusts like we saw in Joel last week. Uh, but we see some repetition of the day of the Lord, visions given to Amos about God's judgment, and uh, themes all through the prophets. We see this theme of a coming judgment is certainly present, as well as some emphasis on right worship, and as I have already said, emphasis on social justice. And so uh, that's our focus here today in Amos. So if you're able to stand, please stand. Now I'm going to read Amos chapter 3, 1 through 10, and uh, we'll allow this to send us in some other directions throughout Amos. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, again page 447 in the paperback Bibles. Uh, here's what has happened uh, so far in chapters 1 and 2 of Amos. God, through Amos, has announced judgment on a number of different nations. God has declared the judgment is coming upon Damascus and Gaza and Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, the Moabites. And you can imagine the Israelites reading this and saying, yeah, that's great, God. You know, go get them. The world is so evil. The world is so awful. Judge them. Destroy them. Yes. And then we get to chapter 3, and all of a sudden, God's judgment is focused on Israel. And so I'll start with verse 1, chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God, has, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Our Father, again, we ask for a great outpouring of your spirit that we would behold the truth in your word today. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
So we're going to look at this issue here by thinking of just three simple statements of what we see God doing in this passage, Amos chapter 3. And the first one is this, that God chooses. God chooses. So we see here in verse 1, the word of the Lord coming through Amos speaking against Israel, as I already indicated. And then in verse 2, God reminds them of something. He says, you only... Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth? Now, that word for known can also be translated chosen. In fact, in the NIV, it is translated that way. It says, you only have I chosen out of all the families of the earth. Now, you might remember the story. This is review from going back to the book of Genesis at the start of our sermon series. But remember that God decided that he was going to form a nation and from that nation would then come a Messiah. And he began to form that nation by going and choosing a man named Abraham. He's going to build a nation out of just one person. And what's very unique or kind of interesting about God's choice of Abraham is that there was nothing in Abraham that you would think would cause God to want to choose him. You know, typically we think about God looking out over history and choosing the good people or the talented people or the able people. But Abraham was not a servant of the God of the Bible. He was not uh, a believer in Yahweh. He was a pagan man in a pagan land. And yet God chose him. Now, why did God choose Abraham and not somebody else? We don't know that, but God in his love put his heart on Abraham and chose him from which he would build this nation. So there's this special choice, God's heart set on Abraham and the nation of Israel, but if you look at the second half of verse 2, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now that's kind of an odd logical move to make there, isn't it? Therefore, because I chose you, because of that, I'm going to punish you. And the idea here is that because God has chosen Israel, he regards his people Israel as having a higher responsibility, a higher obligation to God than does the rest of the world. Now, this is contrary to the way we think, right? I mean, we think that God hates all the world and, and he's, you know, for us, and, and he is, but there is a certain expectation that God has of his people that he doesn't have for people outside the church or outside of the covenant community. You might remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, to whom much has been given, much will be expected. And that's the principle that's involved here. God has generously chosen and provided and given to Israel, and now he expects something out of them. And the problem for Israel is that they saw God's choice of them as an excuse for complacency and laziness and presumption. In Israel's mind, they're thinking, hey, we're God's people, so we don't have to really put forth much effort to do what God says. We don't really have to be concerned about uh, being his witnesses. We don't have to worry about our behavior or attitudes of our hearts or anything. We're chosen people. We're good. We're in. And what God is saying is, I chose you, Israel, for a reason, and I chose you and gave you a privilege that presents a certain responsibility. Israel wasn't getting that. Here's what a guy named Michael Goheen says in his book, A Light to the Nations. The constant temptation 
through Israel's history and throughout church history has been to forget the missional purpose of election and to stress only privilege, salvation, and the status of being a recipient. I mean, sometimes you'll see news stories of people arrested for doing various things, maybe drug busts or domestic abuse or prostitution ring. And occasionally when you see these stories, you'll see that the people who are arrested were policemen. And it's happened here locally in Delaware County. We have policemen arrested for participating in these crimes. Now, when we see those kinds of stories, we're always a little bit shocked. We don't ever want to see anybody participating in those kinds of things. But we're more disappointed, aren't we, when we see that the people running these crime rings are policemen. Why? Why are we more disappointed? It's because we expect more out of policemen, people who are given the responsibility of protecting the law in our land. And in the same way, God expects more out of his chosen people. Well, the same thing applies to you and me today, friends. As Christians, we are chosen people. If you're a Christian, you are a Christian because God chose you from before the foundation of the world, that he pursued you before you pursued him. Ultimately, the reason you believe is because of his choice of you. And that's what we see in Ephesians 1. He, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, here's what often is said about people who believe in this doctrine of election is, oh, you think you're so great, you think you're chosen, you think you're wonderful, you think you have some privileged status before God. Election is not an opportunity for us to be presumptuous and self-righteous and condescending to those outside of God's people. He chose us before the foundation of the world for a purpose that we should be holy and that we should be blameless before him. Because with God's choice, with that privilege, comes responsibility. And so that, that's what is being taught here in verse 2 of Amos 3. Now, what is that responsibility in particular? And that's what we're going to talk about in the second point. What, what does that responsibility look like? for Israel. And so not only does God choose, but he charges also. That is, he gives a charge to his people. And if you look down to verse 10, you'll see that God says, my people Israel, they don't know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds, these people who have gained so much for themselves and they're robbing others. And so now we're starting to see these kind of you know, socially concerned issues. But what God is concerned about is that his people, they don't even know right from wrong. They don't know how to do right. And throughout the rest of Amos, there are a number of um, examples that are given. And throughout the Minor Prophets, God very often will name specifically what it is God's people are doing wrong. In Joel last week, you might remember that it's not specified. Uh, but in this book, in Amos, it is. And so if you look at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, God through Amos says, here's the problem, Israel, is that you trample upon the poor and you ignore the afflicted. That's how it is you don't know what to do right. In chapter 5, there are references to 
um, high taxation of the poor. There are references to those in power who are taking bribes. And then near the end of chapter 5, Amos just kind of sums it all up and he says this, Israel, here's what you're supposed to do. Hate evil, love good, and maintain justice in the courts. That's what I expect of my people. That's what it is to know how to do right. And so here we have a very clear exhortation to God's people to exercise justice in the courts. And so when we think about this issue of social justice, I mean, a lot of different things might come to mind as to exactly what that means. We might have different opinions about it, but we, we could say that social justice has to do with efforts to protect the vulnerable, to defend the rights of everybody, to create a society in which there, is, uh, there are fair and equal opportunities and equal access to wealth and opportunity for all people of all walks of life and all races and all genders. Those who are concerned with social justice issues are concerned primarily about those things. And that's what raises up a lot of people as they see what's going on in our society and we see all kinds of injustices, and so sometimes people will call themselves social justice warriors. That's a term that is frequently used for people who are particularly passionate about this kind of thing. Now, for sure, as Christians, we ought to share a concern for these things. The scriptures are clear in this regard. Proverbs 31 also says this, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So it's clear that this is the responsibility of God's people. And in fact, this is one of the evidences of true conversion. One of the evidences that you are a recipient of grace is that your heart outflows with grace toward others. That's one of the best ways you can know if you're a Christian. God has had mercy on me, so do I have mercy on others? God has not treated me as I deserve, so do I insist on treating others as they deserve? This is a good question to ask about how much do we really understand grace. A natural outflow of grace from God to us is grace from us to others. At the same time, I want to point out some things about what's going on here in Amos. Remember God's charge to his people. When God chose Abraham and formed the nation of Israel, he told Israel that you are going to be a light to the nations. You're going to be a light to the nations. You're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But the question is exactly how are they going to do that? How is Israel going to be a light to the nations? And we see that come up here in Deuteronomy. I've shared this verse with you before, but I think it's very important. Look what God says to his people. He says, keep the statutes and rules and do them, for that will be your wisdom, my people Israel, and your understanding in the sight of of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So this is God writing to his people hundreds of years before Amos wrote. And so what Amos is concerned about is that the people aren't doing this, that they're not following God's statutes and rules in such a way that the nations will look and behold what a wonderful thing is going on in the nation of Israel. And so what, what God is saying is that this is how we're going to be a blessing to the world. 
What, what God is saying to Israel is not, God is not saying to Israel, go out and fix all the social problems that you see among the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Philistines. That's not the charge. The primary charge here from God to his people is make the community of my people a light so that the world watching will behold what a wonderful thing is happening as God's kingdom grows and expands among the faith community. There's a guy named Michael Goheen who says what God's people really are is a display nation. A display nation. That was what Israel was. That's what we are. We are a display people. We are a contrast community. We are to be doing something here together as a congregation that shows the world how to live. That's what we're about as the church. Here's what um, a guy named Howard... Peskett says, listen to this. He says, we might, we might, you know, nuance this statement just a little bit, but here's what he says. Mission is not primarily about doing anything. Mission is about being. It is about being a distinctive kind of people, a counter-cultural community among the nations. Now, we know that mission is about doing something. We know that Jesus and the Great Commission told us to go and make disciples of all nations, and so certainly that is part of it. But what this quote is saying here is that it's not primarily necessarily about being out doing something as much as it has to do with the kind of community and the kind of people we are. That's the emphasis. Is there light shining out of New Life Presbyterian? Is there? That should be our focus. That should be our passion. There's a guy named John Winthrop that maybe you know about if you know your American history. John Winthrop was a Puritan. He uh, brought uh, people from England to the New World in 1630 and started the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And John Winthrop is the guy who coined this phrase, a city on a hill. And he saw Massachusetts, but the church in particular, as a city on a hill, a city that people could see and behold as a light to the nations. And here's what he wrote. This was in a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity. He says, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. That's the call to us as a church. We are not called as a local congregation of God's people to adopt a particular economic system and to push it as if it's God's will. We are not as a church called to advocate a certain minimum wage in our nation. We are not called to seek to overthrow the oppressive culture in which we live. We are not called to necessarily share the world's definition of what constitutes racism. We are not called to have a particular opinion about our president. We are not called to adopt a specific immigration policy. These are all things on which we're all going to differ. We've all got different opinions on this. 
We are not obligated morally to see these particular things in one way. What we are obligated to do is to create by God's Spirit in this place a light that will shine forth in such a way that people will look and say, surely new life is a wise and understanding people. That they'll sense the light coming from this place as the gospel goes forth and disciples are made. This is the place in a congregation like this where leaders are not to oppress their people, but to serve their people. It's in a place like this where all races should be welcome and feel completely comfortable, welcomed, received, loved, and affirmed. This is the place here in God's community where there should be no hint of any kind of sexual harassment. It's in this place that the poor should be generously cared for here. It's in this place that the vulnerable get a voice. That's our priority as God's people. It's not necessarily to go out in the world and make sure that everybody else is doing that. It's to make sure we're doing that. Are we doing that? And how are you contributing to that? And I think it is possible that people can be so concerned about doing social justice in the community that they totally neglect their responsibility to the local church. It's the local congregation where this light should be shining forth in a powerful way. Now, does this mean we're unconcerned about the world? Does this mean we just ignore what's going on in the world? No, absolutely not. As the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us, as Pastor Brian led us earlier, we have ministries to the community here. Elmcroft, Kids Hope, Reach Yorktown, Muncie Mission, we support these efforts. These are important efforts, but, but there is a priority of care that we should keep in mind. And here, here's what I would say. The first priority for a Christian in extending care is to his or her family. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his family, he's denied the faith. Now, that's a strong statement. It's your responsibility to provide for your family first and foremost. Secondly, though, the responsibility is to the church. James 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in food, and then James go on, goes on to say, you know, your faith is dead if you're not helping people. But, but notice the context. If a brother or sister, the context of James 2 is the church, the covenant community, responsibility to brothers and sisters. But the third then, the third responsibility is then to the world and we see this in Galatians 6.10, let us do good to everyone. So yes, we do seek to bless our community and our world. Let us do good to everyone. But notice what he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our brothers and sisters in Christ should get priority according to the scriptures. That's God's charge. That's God's charge to uh, to Amos here to explain this to, to Israel. The, the, the context of this is not social action outside the covenant community. It's Israel's failure to administer justice, compassion, and charity within the covenant community. That, that, that we have to keep in mind as we think through this, this issue. So, last thing is this. God Judges. God chooses, first of all, chooses Israel for a purpose, then charges Israel with this, specific, with this specific responsibility. And lastly, we see that God 
Judges. Now, this is kind of the majority of the text that I haven't even talked about yet. We're going to go through this quickly here, starting with verse 3. Notice Amos's reasoning. Notice his logic here. In verse 3, he says, do two people walk together unless they've agreed to meet? And the idea here is, you know, obviously not. What, what he's doing is showing some very simple cause and effect relationships. He, he's saying if one thing is true, then something else is, is clearly true. If you see two people walking together, clearly they got together and decided to do it. <laughs> I think it's just that simple. Um, verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? If, if a lion roars, it's because his prey is in his grasp and he is about to pounce. That, that's obvious. A, a lion is not going to roar if he doesn't see any prey. One leads to the other. Verse 5, Amos says, does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? In, in other words, a bird is not going to get caught in a trap unless somebody sets a trap. I mean, it's kind of very simple logic, but he's, he's building up to a point here. And so that point is in verse 6. And he says, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And so what Amos is saying here is in the same way as these other things logically lead to each other, now he comes to his point and he's saying, warnings do not uh, warnings are not given unless disaster is imminent. That's his point. The trumpet does not sound unless God intends to bring forth a fulfillment of what he's warning about. He's through Amos proclaiming that judgment is coming and a warning has been given. And this is an example of God's grace, actually, everybody. You know, sometimes you'll see stories also in the news about tornadoes that kind of spring up with no warning. I read about this in Baltimore, Maryland last year, actually. Two people were killed in a tornado, and the weather service didn't know. It just sprung up out of nowhere. There was no thunderstorm warning, no tornado watch, no tornado warning. All of a sudden, there's a tornado, and two people, two people are dead, and homes are destroyed. God does not operate that way. When God sends disaster, which is what verse 6 is telling us, he always gives a warning. And he primarily gives that warning through someone like Amos. Verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God's not going to do anything. He's not going to bring disaster unless he's chosen a prophet to warn people about the coming disaster. That's the point. Now, how does that apply to us today? And it applies in this way, because the ones who are called upon to proclaim the coming judgment today are you and me in the church of Jesus Christ, primarily pastors and preachers, but that's what we're called to do. That's what the church is called to do. Judgment day is coming, and we as his people are called to tell people about it and also to tell them that there is a gracious, loving deliverer, a savior who has come to deliver from that coming judgment anyone who would repent and trust in him. That's the message that should be on the lips of the church. That is our responsibility. What, what is it of first importance? This is kind of, I think, the basic thing I'm getting at in this message is just this question. What is of first importance for the church of Jesus Christ? 
as we talk about social justice issues, this is what we got to get straight. What is of first importance? Is it making sure that everybody has adequate health care? Is it making sure that we try to prevent our country from going to war with Iran by making some statement? Is it by putting forth and advocating for certain gun control policies? I mean, is, is that the first importance for us? The answer is no, and Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Yes, we should be a socially concerned, a socially compassionate people, but the more important thing for us is to know that judgment day is coming. He has appointed a day when we will all stand before God and give an account of ourselves. And when that day comes, the amount of social action you've been engaged in will do you nothing. It won't help you a bit. The only thing that will help you on that day is trusting fully and completely in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That he died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. And that is the privileged, wonderful, blessed message that we've been given as the people of God. And Tim Keller says it like this, if we confuse evangelism and social justice, we lose what is the single most unique service that Christians can offer the world. Christians have the gospel of Jesus by which men and women can be born again into the certain hope of eternal life. No one else can make such an invitation. This is our unique privilege. We can help in various social actions, but friends, if those social actions eclipse this main priority, we have lost our very purpose for existing. What a blessing it is to be able to be called ambassadors of God in this way. Just looking at the ministry of, of Jesus. To think of his earthly ministry. He, he fed people, but he didn't feed everyone. He healed people, but he did not heal everyone. He lived under an oppressive government, but he didn't seek to overthrow that oppressive government. He instead died for those who were his oppressors. He gave up his life and love and mercy. He was risen from the dead. He's going to return one day and he is going to fix everything that is broken. He is going to make right everything that is wrong. That's when the world will be made right, when Jesus comes again. But until then, he has given you and me a charge as the church of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has said. That's what we're called to do. And so let's do it in faith, looking forward to the day when our Savior comes again. Our Lord, we thank you that you have done all that is necessary to save and redeem us, your people. Thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf. And Lord, as we reflect on the compassion and mercy you have shown to us, make our hearts overflow in compassion and mercy to one another, our brothers and sisters here, but also to our hurting and dying world who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised again from the dead. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.